All right, so we're, today we're going to look at Matthew 13. The end of Matthew 13, we'll move on into chapter 14. I'll remind you that chapter divisions are not inspired. Okay, those were man-made. They're very helpful, but they are certainly not breathed out by God. So we will look at this section, which, which uh, certainly goes together. And what we're going to see today is that not only is the king rejected, but the king's messenger, his forerunner, of course, we're talking about John the Baptist, he was also rejected. And so this is going to, uh, what we're doing today is we're actually starting another major section in the book of Matthew. So in, in this section, we're, uh, this, this major section of the narrative in Matthew's gospel is, um, is, is the last, if, if you will, the last section before uh, Jesus' journey to the cross. And so Matthew's been consistently raising the question of Jesus' identity. Uh, we, we saw in uh, chapters uh, 5 through 9 that the crowds marveled at Jesus' authority in his preaching and teaching, as well as his healing ministry. And then uh, we, we saw that people took sides in chapters 11 through 13. They were either for Jesus or they were against Jesus. They did take sides. And we see this increasingly, uh, 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 what's going on in an increasing way. There's a polarization. There's this, there's this division that was growing in chapters 11 through 13. But those closest to Jesus, and by that I mean his, particularly his disciples, have not yet given an explicit, definite answer about who they think Jesus Christ is. Now, we're going to see that in this next section, not, not today, but in, in the weeks to come, uh, uh, leading up particularly to chapter 16, we're going to see they're going to get more explicit and definitive in their answer of who is Jesus. So these next chapters are going to really raise the Christological question. In Christological, you'll see the word Christ. So we're going to, it's really going to help define who is Christ, who is Jesus Christ. Uh, but it's also going to answer the question of why did Jesus Christ come? Why did he come to earth? Well, the text today sums up several themes from chapters 11 through 13. Primarily, the unbelief and the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish people. This, this unbelief led them to oppose Christ, and, and many of them rejected Christ. And so what we're going to see in this next session of, section of Matthew is it's, Jesus ends up taking his mission to the Gentiles, the, in other words, the non-Jewish people. And so the parable section in, in 13 has contrasted the greatness of the kingdom with the unbelievers, and so the unbelievers, well, they, they've done evil, and as a result, Jesus said, they're going to face judgment. So these themes really are joining together here in our text today, this, this whole idea of what do you do with, with the king and his kingdom. If you reject him, you face judgment. And we see uh, several examples of people, various people groups here in these, these next, the, the text we're going to look at today, they rejected Christ. Well, first of all, we see the end of chapter 13 here that King Jesus is rejected in his own hometown. Look at chapter 13, verse 53. Matthew 13, 53. Everyone looking at a Bible? Please follow along. These are the words of the living God. And here's what he says in verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables... 
And those parables, by the way, are referring to the parables of the kingdom in chapter 13. Verse 53 goes on to say that he went away from there, and coming to his his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Well, you can probably guess by the map I've put on the screen for you that Jesus' hometown is Nazareth. Now, Matthew doesn't explicitly say that here, but it does elsewhere in Scripture. Jesus' hometown is clearly Nazareth. That's where he grew up. And if you're wondering where Nazareth is, it's in the region of Galilee. You can see it's just a little to the west of the Sea of Galilee. Now, what did he do there in his hometown? Well, notice the Scripture says, as was his usual practice, he begins to teach in the local synagogue. And by the way, this is probably the very one in which he worshipped as a child. So what we have here is, is a beautiful occasion. Just try, try to picture this as you will. Uh, going, someone going back to their hometown. Uh, the, the local boy has been away for a while, but the local boy makes good. He returns home and he shares what he's been learning, and what he's been teaching. Well, I wish I could say it was a wonderful story, but it doesn't end as a wonderful story. The the story, as we see here, things quickly turned sour. Sadly, Jesus' teaching led to several questions. And I don't know if you were paying attention to all these questions. Remember, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It is inspired and it is profitable, uh, including the very words of Scripture are breathed out by God. Take note of these words. It's very interesting. You notice in verse 55, 54, sorry, verse 54, they question two things about Jesus. Number one, they question his teaching. And number two, they question his miraculous works. Why did they do that? Why would they do that? I mean, Jesus has been going around the countryside, particularly around Capernaum, particularly around the Sea of Galilee area there for for a while now. He's been teaching and preaching and, and healing and doing amazing things. So why would they question him on those issues? Well, remember, he's the homeboy. He grew up in Nazareth. The people in Nazareth wonder if what Jesus is saying and doing is, is it good or evil? You know, it, it is what, what he's saying and doing, is it, does it actually come from God or does it come from demonic powers? And you, I mean, it's a natural question for them to be asking because they, they really can't believe that this one whom they knew as just a simple village citizen has such power. They, they've seen him grow up for, for many, many years. He didn't do amazing things when he was amongst them, so why would anything be different now? Notice, in verse, look at verse 55 and 56, the questions that were asked of Jesus, starting in verse 55. It's interesting, they, they use the word not several times here. 
the use of the word not in, in three different questions, uh, by the way, is expecting the answer of yes. This is a rhetor- these are rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions simply mean you don't need an answer because the answer is obvious. I mean, for example, when they ask, is this not the carpenter's son? And the obvious answer is, well, of course he is. Everybody knew that. So these are rhetorical questions. They don't need answer because everybody already knows what the answer is. And so Jesus was never known as a miracle worker in Nazareth, despite some of the strange stories I was reading about. Jesus did not do miraculous things as a little boy. When he was growing up in Nazareth, he just looked like everybody else and did what everybody else did. He was the carpenter's son. He was Joseph's son. And, and by the way, apparently at this time, Joseph is dead. We don't, we don't really read about Joseph anymore at this point. And so Jesus would have, have uh, growing up in Nazareth, he would have uh, learned the trade of a carpenter, which, by the way, they also probably worked with stone. There wasn't a lot of trees in the area. And so he would have just carried on his father's trade. That's what people did at the time. So since Jesus began his earthly ministry when he was sometime in his early 30s, uh, he had been the village carpenter for at least 20 years. They started quite young. And so you see sons began their adult uh, vocation somewhere around the age of 13 years of age. And so in that time, you have to remember, he had... Uh, he had, he had done little to show what he was to become. Uh, except for maybe Joseph and Mary themselves. Everybody else just, and even Joseph and Mary, you know, that were maybe wondering about him. But certainly everybody else thought of him as just a man. And so what is the, one of the things this shows us is clearly it shows us the humanity of Jesus Christ. While he, of course, he's God... He is also a man, and the two natures of deity and humanity are now forever united into one being, Jesus Christ. And so this is one of those passages, if you ever, you ever come across someone who doubts that Jesus was ever a man, use this passage. It clearly shows everybody believed him as just a normal human being. Well, let me comment on the names mentioned in verse 55. Did you notice there are several names mentioned there? Uh, there doesn't actually mention Jesus' sisters, what their actual names were. But notice it does say that Jesus had sisters, but it does mention the names of Jesus' brothers. Let me just comment on them for a moment. It's interesting, uh, at this point, they're, not, they're, they're clearly not believers, but, but at, at, at some point, obviously, they, did come, they, they obviously did become believers. For example, it mentions James. Uh, he's the one who became the head elder of the Church of Jerusalem. And he wrote a book of the Bible. Uh, it also mentions Judas. He also wrote a book of the Bible. But it's not by the name of Judas. It's by the name of Jude. So Judas and Jude are the same person. So uh, obviously at this point they're not believers. But they did come, be, become believers. Um, most likely uh, during uh, uh, the resurrection of Christ. James, Jesus' brother James, is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, as one of the ones who saw the resurrected Christ, and he became a believer. So I'm assuming that if the others were not believers at that time, they certainly did during Christ's resurrection. And then notice in verse 56, Jesus' sisters are mentioned. 
Uh, of course, they're not named there. Uh, the other interesting thing is it, it, the words with us means that these brothers and sisters lived in Nazareth and were probably at the synagogue, the very synagogue where Jesus was teaching. So they're there listening to Jesus. However, take note what Scripture says here, that the people of Nazareth, they know Jesus' family. They, they know Jesus' occupation. Jesus may have even worked on their house or maybe a piece of furniture in their house. They, they knew each other in this small little village of Nazareth. And so they couldn't accept that he's now some great rabbi and miracle worker that they had been hearing about all around the countryside of Galilee. Now, you, you must remember that Jesus grew up in this very small town, which is called Nazareth. And so, uh, well, here's what one author said uh, in regards to Nazareth. I quote, Archaeology has shown Nazareth consisted of about 60 acres and thus would have had a maximum population of about 480 people. End quote. So we're talking about a small place. Very small place, all right? Everyone would have basically known each other. And so Jesus, you, know, you, you can't just you know, go off into obscurity in a little place like that. Everybody knew Jesus. Well, what about the belief that Mary was a perpetual virgin? You ever heard that idea? There are people who believe that Jesus, or sorry, Mary was a perpetual virgin. Well, here's what one commentator said, I quote, it is clear that Mary did not live in perpetual virginity, as Roman Catholic heresy claims. After Jesus' birth, Joseph began normal marital relations with his wife, and she bore at least four sons and two daughters by him. Mary was a woman of extraordinary godliness, but she was not more divine than any other woman ever born, and certainly was not the mother of God, as Catholic dogma maintains. She even referred to the Lord as my, uh, as God, my Savior, in Luke chapter 1, affirming her own sinfulness in need of salvation, end quote. Well, look at verse 57. It's interesting there. <clears throat> we see in verse 57 that amazement turns to skepticism, and then that goes to opposition. It's interesting, the word uh, for offense the word for offense is the Greek word scandalizo. Sounds very similar to an English word, doesn't it? Scandalize. These people were literally scandalized by what Jesus was teaching. They, and that's why it says they took offense. And by the way, the word that, that, that phrase took offense means a lot more than they're just, they, they had some personal offense. It actually connotes deep sin and has connotations of apostasy. It denotes total rejection. So clearly they consider Jesus a false prophet and false teacher. That's the idea of that word scandalizo, or, or they took offense. What was Jesus' response to their offense? Well, verse 58 says he didn't do many mighty works there in Nazareth. Why? Why didn't he do many mighty works? Well, look at the last word in chapter 13. What's the last word? It's unbelief. Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. 
They refused to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They refused to believe that He was the King of kings and Lord of lords. And sadly, this word unbelief sums up the rejection theme that we've seen that started all the way back in chapter 11. Now, what are we seeing here in chapter 13? We're seeing the polarization between Jesus and the Jewish people. And and sadly, it's continuing on. And as a result, what's going to happen is Jesus is going to take uh, himself. He's going to withdraw in these next few chapters, starting in chapter 14. And he's going to focus primarily on his disciples. And he's also going to take his mission to the Gentiles. Because the Jewish people rejected Christ for the most part. And so the ones who knew Jesus the best actually turned against him. The people that he grew up with turned against him. So thus we'll see Jesus turning more and more to the disciples, and then he's, he's going to spend a lot of time with them. He's going to prepare them for the time when they're the ones who will take over his mission. Let's think of some application here for a moment. Number one, because familiar, familiarity breeds contempt, you may have to make some tough decisions. You ever heard that phrase, familiarity breeds contempt? Sadly, it's often true. Now, why was there contempt for Jesus? Well, first, the people among whom Jesus grew up just expected him to remain the village carpenter. I don't know if if they were offended that they lost their carpenter or not. Maybe there's some some bitterness growing on there. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But uh, certainly the the time that Jesus grew up in that particular society, there was very little mobility during that time, Uh, particularly socially. Everyone spent their lives in the occupation that their father did and their grandfather did, and so that occupation would have been passed on, which it was, to Jesus. They just, that was just the expectation. So I don't know if, you know, the, Paul, the tall poppy syndrome was going on here. What? I don't know. Maybe there's a bit of that. It didn't like this guy going off into the countryside. Maybe. Why was there contempt for Jesus? Well, another idea is this, that the Jewish people in general, remember, they, tr- they did try to force Jesus into their narrow expectations of what a Messiah should look like and what he should do. They expected a, uh, uh, someone who was a faithful practitioner of the law And by the law, that also included the oral part of it, not just the written part. But they also expected a political conqueror. They wanted to get rid of the evil Roman Empire. And so when Jesus refused to kind of fit their preconceived ideas, they turned on him. They turned on him as a result of that. So there is some application in this for us as you think about this. You and I have been given the message of Christ. We've been given the the mission. We've been given this message of Christ to a a lost world. And we may have family and friends and uh, others who reject or oppose our call of God. And it is a call of God. God has called every one of us to take this wonderful message of Christ to the lost world around us. And uh, you may have to choose between your family. You might have to choose between your friends. And, and, and you're gonna, am I going to choose my family or am I, I going to choose serving Christ? I, I knew many people, even within the Christian university I went to, some fellow preacher boys of mine who, who gave up family 
family rejected them. They actually had funeral services for them because they became Christians and, and went into the ministry. They wanted to be preachers of the gospel of Christ. So they, they realized by doing that, their family would reject them. That may not happen to you. I hope not anyway, but you, it might be a little bit more subtle than, the, than your family actually having a funeral service for you. But nevertheless, we, we can sometimes get uh, opposition and rejection from family. That should be expected. Number two, you must always be ready to find your greatest opposition from those who know you best. That's what happened to Christ. Jesus often said, for example, in chapter 10, he says, It is sufficient for disciples to be like their teacher and slaves to be like their master. Christ has been telling us this sort of stuff now for a little while in the book of Matthew. And so since Jesus fellow Jews and those also, as we see here in his hometown, turned against him, well, we've got to ask the question, why should we be surprised and shaken when that very thing happens to us? We shouldn't. In fact, we should expect it. You should expect it when you go to the public school to be rejected. You should expect when you go to work to be rejected, to receive opposition. That should be the normal thing. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so if you have unrealistic expectations, it's just going to destroy your contentment. So go with realistic expectations, and I think you'll actually find that helpful. If you're expecting some opposition and rejecting, then, uh, then you, you actually, that actually helps you to stand. Number three. When you trust self instead of God, judgment will come on you. Jesus demands faith if we're to experience his power. Now, that's not always the case in Scripture. Okay, uh, we, We've already looked at some examples where, where uh, people were not evidencing, evidencing faith. We see that in Scripture where, nevertheless, God did mighty things in them. But sometimes unbelief blocks the supernatural. That's what we're, we're seeing here in this chapter. And so this doesn't mean that our faith is necessary to unleash divine power. That's, that's an unbiblical philosophy that sometimes comes from Christian books and even from our radio waves and pulpits. This doesn't mean that our faith is necessary to unleash God's power. Okay, Please understand that. God is sovereign. God is fully in control. He will do as He pleases. Okay, We do not control God. All right? God is not a vending machine. You don't press A1 on the vending machine and put your dollar in the machine and get exactly what you want. It doesn't always work that way. We don't control God. Now, sadly, this is the error, the error of the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel, you know, basically, you know, kind of like mind over matter. Faith, faith trumps everything. You know, if you have faith, God is, you know, the idea is that if you have faith, that God is obligated to do what you want him to do. That's heresy. And so it's, it's also the Pelagian heresy that's just been intensified. And by Pelagian heresy, I mean it's this idea that comes from a long time ago that uh, we can save ourselves. You can save yourself. Well, the prosperity gospel tells God what to do. Whoa, you can't tell God what to do. God's not obligated to do anything that you want him to do. 
Fortunately, the Bible says that God is totally sovereign. God's totally in control and does reign supreme over his creation. But when we trust self instead of God, what happens uh, is that judgment's going to come on us, just as it did on the people of Nazareth. Now, when we come to chapter 14, what we are about to read is the second rejection story. And that's why I'm kind of putting these two together. They go well together because they're, they're both, both have this, the same theme of rejection. In this case here, Herod is mentioned in the story, and he's kind of a representative, if you will, of the leaders of Israel, both in his false understanding of Jesus, because what we're going to see is he, he didn't understand who Jesus was. In fact, he thought Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected. But he also represents him in the idea of, that he persecuted God's messenger. And so, and, and, and by God's messenger, of course, I mean John the Baptist. And so at the same time here, John is, is a bit like Jesus Christ. John made bold proclamations, just as Jesus did. And we, he was willing to suffer the consequences. He was arrested, and he was martyred at the hands of God's enemies. And so this passage here intensifies, if you will, the rejection that we've seen in chapter 13, and it demonstrates how far that rejection will go. And, and of course, it went to death, didn't it? What's the point? Well, Matthew's using the martyrdom of John here to illustrate the extent of the opposition to Jesus and the kingdom heralds. What can be expected of the kingdom and its heralds, its messengers? They can expect opposition just as John the Baptist did. Well, we see here in chapter 14 that the king, King Jesus, loses his friend and forerunner, John the Baptist. Let's look at the first two verses, because we see here that King Herod had a a false opinion of Jesus. Look at verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. (laughs) Well, you notice uh, Matthew mentions Herod the Tetrarch in verse 1. It's the only place in Matthew that, um, that, that this particular Herod is mentioned. There's several Herods in the Bible. Uh, you might be thinking of his father, uh, who is Herod the Great. He's actually mentioned in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, this is not the same Herod, so don't get them confused. They, they did have the same name, but not the same person. This is Herod the Tetrarch, uh, often called Herod Antipas. Antipas, or however you say his name. Anyway, uh, he, he got Tetrarch because it, it means he ruled one-fourth of the province. After Herod the Great died, you'll see a map on the screen here, um, his kingdom was divided. By the way, uh, you'll see uh, that he, he ruled this, this region of Galilee and uh, the region of Perea from uh, A.D. 4 through to year, the year 39. And so at this point, Herod, he's been on the throne uh, of this region for now for about 25 years. So this is the person we're talking about. This is the one who who went and killed John the Baptist. This is the one who has this misunderstanding about Jesus. Now, if you look at verse 2, it's clear that Herod's conscience has been troubling him. And so he thinks, 
Jesus is the resurrected John who has possibly come back to, to get revenge at Herod. So clearly Herod had some misunderstandings about Jesus here. He didn't even know who Jesus was as, as a starter. And then the end of verse 2 gives us another misunderstanding. Notice that Herod did not understand where these powers were coming from. He assumed that the miracle of coming back from the dead has now given John the authority to perform these amazing deeds. And so there's, there's obviously several problems with that. Number one, nowhere in the Bible does it say that John did, performed miracles. And number two, these, these powers of Jesus went, of course, way beyond what, what John ever had. So there's a few problems, at least. But then what we see starting in verse 3 is, is a bit of a flashback. All right? it, it, okay, you have to understand the, uh, the, these historical narrative sections are not necessarily in chronological order. Okay, This is a flashback to, to something that, that's happened. And so Matthew's using this to, to bring up this whole rejection theme again. And so what we have here is this flashback to the arrest and the death of John. John the Baptist. Look at verse 3. It says in verse 3, For Herod had seized John, notice past tense, had seized John, and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came... The daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oath and his guest, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. By the way, please don't ask me what happened to the head. I don't know. It doesn't mention his head. That's not the point of the story. Okay, (laughs) People really get sidetracked on these issues. Now, why did Herod arrest John? Well, if you look at your text, you'll see that John's arrest was caused by his condemnation of Herod's sin. What was Herod's sin? It wasn't getting married, by the way, guys. All right, That was not his sin. His sin was he got married to somebody else's wife. And so he committed divorce, the, the sin of divorce against his wife, and then caused this other woman to get a divorce so that he could get married to this woman who was already somebody else's wife. And so John naturally preached against that, and that often does not earn you great dear friends, does it? And so we read about John's arrest, by the way, if you were to back up in Matthew, all the way back to chapter 4, you can read about John's arrest. And so the arrest was partly political, it was partly also a moral issue for John. Remember, he's condemning Herod's marriage to this woman named Herodias. He had been married to the daughter, by the way. Uh, History tells us he was married to the king of uh, Nabatea, which is actually south of uh, the region of Perea. 
If you look at the map here on the screen, you'll see Perea is directly south, and it's south of the Sea of Galilee, and it's to the east of the Jordan River. So he, he married the, the king of that region, his daughter. And you can probably imagine when you get divorced to a king's daughter, that's also not going to be making you a very popular person. And in fact, what we, we learn in history as a result of the divorce, the king of, of Nebatea went to war against Herod and actually defeated Herod. And if it wasn't for the Romans coming in and intervening, uh, Herod would have died at that moment. They would have, I'm sure they would have killed him. But he was saved by the Romans. And so in the end, Herod imprisoned John in the fortress, uh, fortress called uh, Macareus. You'll see Macareus down here, uh, way down here in this region, near the, it's east of the Dead Sea. The beautiful place, I've given you a little cutaway uh, drawing of the fortress of Macareus. And so this is uh, one of Herod's palaces, and uh, uh, John would have um, been in prison there, and that's where he was beheaded. Well, what event is taking place at the fortress? Well, if you were reading carefully, you notice that Herod's having a birthday party. Who was invited to his birthday party? Well, I can assure you it wasn't the poor people. <laughs> it wasn't the people that Herod hated. In fact, Mark chapter 6, the companion passage, Mark says he actually tells us the guests were high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So he's sucking up to his friends, so to speak. And by the way, you notice in the passage this, this dance from the princess. This dance was a bit unusual, if you know anything about that time period. Number one, one reason it was unusual is because princesses would not dance in those situations. That was typically reserved for prostitutes, the, the court prostitutes. And so she's kind of, she's, well, not kind of, she is lowering herself, if you will, in that situation. So it's a bit unusual. And uh, if you're wondering, the princess was probably, as I was doing some reading, most estimates is somewhere between 12 and 14 years of age. And so... Probably most everybody was shocked by the princess's dance, but they also would have been honored at the same time. And of course, as, you, as we read, Herod obviously liked what this uh, girl was doing, which uh, shows you just how debased and pathetic Herod's court really was. Now, what did Herod think of the dance here by the princess? Well, you, you, can, you can see he was greatly pleased with the girl and her dance. And what does he do? Well, according to Matt, uh, uh, sorry, Mark chapter 6, he actually offered the girl up to half his kingdom. Now, what would possess this lunatic to offer up to half his kingdom to a, to a 12 or a 13, 14-year-old girl? Well, what usually remember, what usually happened in these sort of things is they usually got drunk. <laughs> so uh, one re, one wise reason not to get drunk is because you end up doing stupid things like offering half your kingdom to people who don't deserve it. Well, anyway, that's what happened. And uh, the, uh, the princess immediately goes to her mother and uh, asks her what to do. And you can probably guess what happens. We read it, didn't we? She ends up asking for the head of John the Baptist. And 
Not only does she ask for John the Baptist's head, she asked for it on a platter, and she wanted it right now. Why would she do that? Well, Mark chapter 6 again tells us that Herodias had, had this, this grudge. She's bitter against John, and uh, she wanted John dead. Well, why wasn't John dead already? Remember, Herod feared the people. That's what the Bible says. And so the princess faithfully followed her mother's direction. She goes and asks for John to be killed. She wants his head on the platter immediately. She wants it brought to the banquet. Which I know it's kind of disgusting, but that's what she does. And so Herodias obviously didn't want to give Herod any time to, to somehow wiggle his way out of this, you know, lest he become sober and change his mind. And so she wanted John's head delivered in that very banquet hall right that very moment. And, and so Herod does it. He fulfills a request. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Well, the Bible gives us actually two reasons, if you're reading carefully. Uh, number one, he had to give in because he made an oath. He made an oath. He said up to half his kingdom. And the Bible also mentions because his guest had heard the oath, he didn't want to um, lose faith, so to speak. He didn't want to look like an idiot before all of his friends there. And so he gave the order for John to be killed. By the way, this is a very significant moment. This, this is one of those, those um, hinge moments in the, the story, the Gospel of Matthew, if you will. This event is very significant because it actually ends the powerful ministry of the Messiah's prophet and forerunner. And in the process, as the Messiah's, the, the, the last Old Testament prophet is killed, now what's happening is, is the baton is being passed on to the greater prophet, who of course is Jesus Christ. So it's a significant event for that very reason. Well, let's think of some application from our text. Number one, all God's people can expect persecution and opposition even unto death. Now, I want you to turn over to Jesus' words in chapter 10. Okay? Look at chapter 10. I don't want you to take my words for it. You take Jesus' words. Look at chapter 10. Turn over just a couple pages. Matthew chapter 10. Let's start reading in verse 16. Look what Jesus says. Jesus says in verse 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise again, or will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. 
A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So it's pretty clear throughout the Gospels that God's people can expect persecution and opposition, and even, even death. That's what happened to the Master. So Jesus says we should expect the same. Well, you can turn back to Matthew 14. The second application is this, that to be dead is more blessed than to be alive. To be dead is more blessed than to be alive. Now, I'll put quotations around dead and alive because that's one of those things, depending on your perspective, can really change things. Now, why would I, why would I put that there as an application? Well, here, here, here's what one commentator said, and, and this commentator said it well. So you might understand where I'm coming from. Here's what he says, quote, Those who murdered John are far more pitiable than John himself. The one murdered truly lives, while those who murdered him are in reality the dead. End quote. You understand what he's saying? They, they only killed John's body. They didn't kill John. John lived. You can't kill John. In fact, he was to be absent from the body, he was to be present with the Lord, the Bible says. So as soon as John's head came off his body, he was immediately with Jesus Christ. So don't ever forget what Jesus said in Matthew 10. He said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Right? That's where the real fear should lie. We shouldn't fear people who can do something to the body. So let me ask you this. Do you have the right perspective about life and death? Do you find that, that application a bit strange? I hope not. I hope that sounds normal to you. All right. The reality is, if you're a believer, this is not your best life now. Your best life is yet to come. But if you're an unbeliever, this is your best life because there is a life to come that will last forever that is far worse than anything you can experience in your body on this earth. So in one sense, if you're a believer, it's, it's, a, bless, it's a blessed thing to die, isn't it? And so the Bible says we should mourn as others do mourn when, when believers die, because it's, it's, actually a, it's actually a promotion, if you will. Well, number three, people are... Offended by Jesus. That's one of the things we often see here, don't we? In this Bible passage, we've encountered a variety of people 
And they really provide a sad glimpse, not just into the past, but they provide a sad glimpse into what people are often like to today. Now, did you notice that many people were offended by Jesus here in, our past, in both these passages? No one seemed to be offended by King Herod, though, did they? They're offended by Jesus, offended by John. They're not offended by Jesus, or sorry, they're not offended by by Herod. Now, why? Well, that's because they were like Herod to one degree or another. Birds of a feather do often flock together, don't they? They were, and, and they're not offended by one another. Why is that? Because sinners, like other sinners, often feel at home with one another. Sinners enjoy being in one another's presence. And if their conscience is bothered by, by um, some other sinner, well, they can always point to another sinner that is going to make them look good in their own eyes. You think about it. After all, I mean, it is comforting to have someone as evil as Herod around you. Very comforting to have someone like Herod around you. Makes you feel good. And that's true, but... The reality is you don't get help from other sinners. Don't get help from other sinners unless, you know, we're t- unless you're talking about believers being iron sharpening iron. That's a different issue. Other people do not enable you to live a godly life. They don't provide salvation for your sins. Of course, Jesus is the only one who can do that, and Jesus does. Only Jesus can. My last application is this, that appearances are often deceiving. Appearances are often deceiving. We see from our text here that uh, there's this great contrast going on between various individuals. Particularly, uh, there's a contrast in this story. uh, By the way, in the final analysis, the real contrast, if you look at it, it's not between Herod and John. The real contrast here is between King Herod and King Jesus. Now, what happened to Herod? Let me ask you this. Do you know what happened to Herod? You may not know this. Well, as you know, Herod killed John. But just a few years after this, uh, Herod was actually dethroned, and it happened as a result of gossip and slander. He was, uh, there was false testimony given against him. And so he was dethroned. He was, he was banished off to the, the region of Gaul, where he eventually died. But just so, so just think about the contrast here. It's an interesting contrast. The Herod was a petty king. He was, all the Herods were nasty men. I mean, he looked kingly, but he's petty. And Jesus was the king of kings, lord of lords. He appeared as a humble Galilean peasant. Herod did what those in power do. He used his power to, to try to preserve his power. But in the end, he lost it and he died a poor man's death. On the other side, Jesus laid his power aside to die for his people. But what do we see about Jesus today? Scripture says that today Jesus rules in glory. And he is coming again and he will rule forever and ever. So as we see King Jesus, it's vital that we agree with John's testimony. Remember what John said? Well, you may not, so let me tell you. I'll put it on the screen here for you. John said this about Jesus. He said, I have seen And I testify that this is the Son of God. A few verses before that, John says this. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now both those statements 
was John said them in reference to Jesus. So let me ask you, do you believe what John said? Do you believe his testimony? Are you looking to the Lamb of God, the only one who can take away your sin? Do you really believe, within your deepest heart of hearts, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? You must. Because He is. (laughs) He is the Son of God, the one who also came to take away your sin. May God give us ears to hear and hearts that will actually believe what the Scriptures say about Jesus Christ.